Well, we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews. If you'd make your way to the book of Hebrews, verse-by-verse study, and as you know, the book of Hebrews presents the supremacy of Christ. Christ is superior to anyone and anything. He is the soon-returning King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's the eternal high priest. We've learned much about that in the book of Hebrews up to this point. We're a little more than halfway through. We come to chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, um, a message which I've titled The Superiority of the New Covenant. The Superiority of the New Covenant. Three weeks ago, on August 16th, 2020, in the morning service, I brought an overview of the Old and New Covenants just to get us thinking about this somewhat difficult Uh, and little-known truth from God's Word. And in that message, I shared that a covenant is basically a promise, and in our context, it's a promise from God. And what's more, there are conditional and unconditional covenants. A conditional covenant is similar to a contract in that um, in order to be fulfilled, both sides must abide by the details of that covenant contract. You know, uh, I've, uh, I've been given, giving thought to um, the issue of the conditional and unconditional uh, covenant, and um, uh, Craig and Victoria, I'll pick on you. Uh, now, I've already picked on uh, Scott on that side, so I'll go over to this section. Um, they're real estate agents, and in order for their conditional covenant to be fulfilled, you have a buyer and a seller. Do I have it right so far? And the buyer says, I'll do this, and the seller says, I'll do this, and, but you have to have someone in the middle, a mediator, and Craig and Victoria mediate that conditional covenant, that contract. Is that a fair assessment of that? That's what you generally do? Uh, and you don't walk away with glory, you walk away with... Uh, something in your pocket, uh, I'm trusting, that, to mediate that. Well, folks, when it comes to the spiritual realm, there's the need for a covenant, and there are two parties, but the party consisting of us can't meet the demands of the other party, namely God. Why can't we meet his demands? Because of sin, right? We don't measure up to what he requires. So, lo and behold, in eternity past, it was decreed that there would be a mediator sent to broker the deal. And his mediation was acceptable. You follow where I'm going with this? That's what Hebrews 7, check check that, 8, verses 7 through 13 described to us that there is, there was and is a mediator who could broker the deal, who could bring the parties together. One party was absolutely willing and ready and said, here are the conditions of my deals. I'll even give it to you in a law. All you have to do is meet the law perfectly, measure up to the law perfectly. The law is good and holy and just. And if you will measure up perfectly, you'll be accepted. And no one could. 
throughout time except for one. God became man because he and he alone could meet the righteous demands of what the other party demanded for this contract, for this covenant to be established. And so he became the mediator of the new covenant because he himself was the one who met the demands. It would be analogous to Craig and Victoria bringing two parties together, a seller who had these demands, and they were righteous demands, and a buyer who did not have a penny to his or her name, but so longed to have this house. And so Craig and Victoria said, we can and will broker this deal by meeting demands ourselves. And that's the love of God in Christ being the mediator of the new covenant. This is easily the most difficult text in 35 years of preaching ministry I've ever faced. I have been wrenching all week. I texted late last night. Kathy's out of town. But I knew I needed someone to always be going to the high priest who ever lives to make intercession. And she was praying. I even contacted a seminary professor who doesn't know me late last night and said, would you help? (laughs) He texted back and says, what do you want? (laughs) Who are you? Why are you bothering me? No, he didn't say that. Can you believe I did that? (laughs) Yes, of course you can believe I did that. But I did it for you. Because I want to get this right. Let's look at it. Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made, the first old. Now that which decayeth and groweth old is ready to vanish away. Three primary points if you're taking notes. First of all, we see in verse 7 the need for a new covenant. It says right there, for if the first covenant had done the job, then we wouldn't need a second one. That's obviously uh, in common language. The argument is essentially the same in chapter 7 and verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, in that case it was uh, arguing for a better priesthood, 
the Levitical priesthood, it couldn't get the job done. In this case, it's arguing for a better covenant because the old covenant could not get the job done. With our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, no beginning, no end, uh, eternal, no need for an offering for himself. In fact, an offering was brought from Abraham to Melchizedek indicating he is greater, he is better. Christ is our priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, that took care of the priesthood. Now the covenant has to be addressed. And there was the need for a new covenant. Verse 6 in our text, in chapter 8, states that a new and better covenant was needed. For now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much more he's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. It's not that the covenant was bad. It's not that the law was bad. In fact, Romans seven twelve says, the law is holy and just and good. Why then is a new covenant needed? Well, Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 7, address this issue. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said will we do. We'll keep the holy standards of God perfectly, is what the people said. And Moses wrote all the words of the law and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, read it in the audience of the people. In other words, they're fully aware now. They're absolutely aware of what God demanded and all that the Lord has said we will do and will be obedient. Oh, my, what a commitment that they made. Have you ever said to the Lord, I will do everything that you've said for me to do? That is quite, that is quite a commitment. And the old covenant then was given to raise the standard of God's holiness to show the people that, in fact, they couldn't keep it in their own strength. And that was by design. God intended to do it that way. Why? To trick us, uh, to frustrate us, to show us that we're no good, we're rotten. Primarily, he did it so that his glory would be made large to the world, so that we would see our inability and that he has provided the mediator, the one who will broker the deal of bringing that covenant together, the Lord Jesus Christ being the mediator of the new covenant. I, I like what theologian uh, Leon Morris wrote. He says, a law can lay down what people ought to do, but it cannot give them the power to overcome the temptations to do evil. Uh, I shared with you three weeks ago that you can have a speed limit sign But that speed limit sign that says 65 miles per hour doesn't have the capacity in and of itself to help you regulate and follow what it tells you to do. In fact, all it does is tell you when you haven't obeyed the law. The law of Moses, similar to that principle. And so the law was never intended to save. We need to understand that. The old covenant was not intended to save. Romans 3.20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, 
for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law succeeded in revealing sin, making the lost aware of condemnation, uh, which would drive them to God's mercy in order to be set free. I like what um, theologian Thomas Constable uh, correctly stated about this principle. He said, and this is referencing the book of Galatians, he said, uh, Paul was not saying that the Mosaic law is valueless for Christians. The Mosaic law is a part of the Old Testament, all of which is profitable for Christians. He was saying that nobody, that, that obeying uh, the, uh, the Mosaic law never results in the justification or sanctification of anyone, Jew or, or Gentile. It does not make us right with God. It does not keep us right with God. It shows us his holiness and our need for grace moment by moment. Anybody here stand in need of the mercy of God all the time? Amen? That's what the law does. It shows you your need for that. So, very quickly then, uh, that was a, a, a stating of the need for a new covenant. Now, secondly, we see in the, uh, in the lion's share of this text a restating of the new covenant itself. In verses 8 through 12, with the Spirit of God once again inspired the writer of Hebrews to restate the new covenant as was given originally in Jeremiah chapter 31. And that Jeremiah 31 uh, passage is referenced or stated a number of times in the book of Hebrews. I, had, I didn't count them up, but any number of times, uh, I'll, I'll say a half a dozen, I'm sure it's that many, in the book of Hebrews, it either alludes to it or, in fact, it quotes it. It is that important, uh, hence the difficulty in uh, wrapping one's arms around this. What is meant then by the new covenant? Well, there are two primary views uh, of interpretation in, uh, in the body of Christ, and there have been for a long time. The one view is the covenantal view, and the other view is the dispensational view, of which I am in that camp. Some of you know what that's all talking about. Uh, it's, not within, uh, it's not germane to this study to get into that, but in those two camps, there are views of interpretation. And relative to the new covenant, the covenantal hermeneutic, the view of interpretation by those who are, uh, use a covenantal hermeneutic, uh, really they're pretty consistent with what they understand this to mean. That is, the promises of Israel in the Old Testament basically were swallowed up. Uh, I'm going to really summarize very quickly. Uh, swallowed up, uh, and the church now is, has become that people of God. Dispensational um, hermeneutics would say, no, Israel is Israel, uh, and the church is the church, and there's a distinction, uh, uh, and we're not, to, we're not to conflate those two. The problem with the new covenant is dispensationalists are everywhere on this particular subject. I bet I have changed uh, my understanding of the New Covenant uh, three or four times in the last uh, week or so. Um, it is, uh, there is profound inconsistency and disagreement in my hermeneutical camp, uh, which whenever you're coming to an interpretation and those with whom you almost always agree don't agree with one another and have a number of views uh, it is a bit distressing. Um, let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, one thing that we know or we should know, and that at least I think I know, and that's this. The new covenant is for future Israel in the kingdom age. Of this, 
I'm certain, as certain as I can humanly be. And the reason why I'm certain is because of all of the future, lang- future tense language and the specificity of who, to whom it is written. If you will notice in our text, it says um, in verse 8, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Why does it list two different houses from Jeremiah? What, was, what did the kingdom look like during the time of Jeremiah? It was what? Divided kingdom. That's exactly right. And then notice this future tense. It says in, in verse um, um, nine, uh, with uh, the house of Israel with the house of Judah. Oh, and then look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Why does it not say, and with Judah? Because he, the king of Israel, will unify the kingdom, and there will be one nation as there was under David and Solomon. Do you see that? Now, that is intentional. That was not just accidental that one, uh, it said currently it's Israel and Judah, but it will be Israel. That tells me this is future, in the future, in Jeremiah's day, and the writer of Hebrews quoting it, it, uh, it is still future. But make no mistake about it, it is for the Jew in the future. Let me give you some, uh, some other references uh, that speak to that, uh, really, and we're just going to read through these. In Jeremiah, verse 30, verses 4 through 7, it says, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Okay, now, they were brought home from captivity, from Babylonian captivity and then Medo-Persian captivity. They came home, came home with a decree by Cyrus. Did they dwell as an autonomous people group at that time? Of course not. They've never, ever been without um, danger. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Certainly, they, uh, they were not following the Lord. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will, be, uh, but I will put... Uh, my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. Has that happened? Of course not. It hasn't happened. Um, am I, am, am I, uh, did I advance? Okay. I'm sorry. Um, let me go back to that. I think I advanced one too many. Okay. Nope. We'll continue on. We'll read it from up here. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all faces are turned into pillows. In other words, there is going to be a time where there is great anguish and suffering. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Future tense. Now that is chapter 30 of Jeremiah. The new covenant is given in chapter 31. What comes first, 30 or 31? 30. The time of Jacob's trouble comes first. What I'm convinced is the seven-year tribulation in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Then he's going to be saved out of it. Uh, 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 soon all Israel shall be saved, Romans eleven twenty six, which will then institute the new covenant, chapter 31, verses uh, uh, 31 through 34. Now, following that, chapter 32, 
of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, 37 to 42, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again into a place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. That's what I was reading earlier, I'm sorry. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their people after, or their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. In other words, this is a time that they're going to be dwelling in safety. God is going to be among them. They're going to be his people. He's going to be their God. They shall not depart from me. Yea, I will Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in the land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. So, chapter 30, such uh, tribulation such as you've never seen. Chapter 31, the promise of a new covenant. Chapter 32, let me show you what the new covenant is going to look like in that day. So it fits very well that the new covenant is for Israel in the future. A couple of other passages by another author, another writer, just so we can get another flavor from Ezekiel 11 verses 19 and 20. I will give them one heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. And this is, by the way, the context is to Israel. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This has to be future. This has not ever happened in world history when the whole people group have, in fact, turned to the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 28. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do this for your sakes, O house of Israel. Uh, Check that. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, so will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put uh, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I'll be your God. And Ezekiel chapter 37 says much of the same. So this is for national ethnic Israel one day in the, in the kingdom age when they are in the promised land. So the new covenant is for Israel in the kingdom age. But, and here's the difficulty, you say, well, well, that was easy. We just read the text, and it was really straightforward. Absolutely. That's why I say, of this I'm certain. Of this now, I'm not certain. And that's this. Is the new covenant also for present-day believers? Are you a part of the new covenant also? And if you are, give me a verse that says that you are. And if you're not then what is this relationship that we have with the Lord? 
And what am I to do with that? And there are, um, I would even say most theologians believe that the new covenant was put into effect when Jesus paid the debt for sin on the cross. Uh, That is, he commissioned the new covenant in Matthew 26, 28 at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the new covenant of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, you all remember a guy who used to come around here named Adam Claxton, don't you? He was in the office uh, yesterday doing this and that. Um, actually, I'd ask him to come over because I was having a computer problem. And when he did, I attacked him. And I went after him with this question about the new covenant. And we battled. It was, uh, it was bad. It was a mess. And he didn't persuade me and I didn't persuade him about what it actually is. And for the next many hours, I continued battling, trying to understand how, if at all, does the new covenant apply to us. Um, One thing that I discovered, an unconditional covenant that God makes is not dependent on time. It doesn't matter when it was said and when it began, because it's not dependent on time, i.e., is the Abrahamic covenant conditional or unconditional? Covenant God made with Abraham, conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. I will make of you a great people. But God, I'm in my 90s, and so is my wife, and we've been barren for 70 years. I will make of you a great people. Unconditional. How long before they had a baby? A number of years before they, they had Isaac. It was a number, I, don't, I didn't count it up, a number of years. It didn't happen that very moment. The Palestinian covenant, I will give you a land. And he laid out the dimensions, Brother Tom. Here to here, here to here. I've been all over that. Glorious, you ought to go. How long after he first gave the Palestinian covenant was it realized? 500 years roughly. They had to go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph was sold into slavery. He went down to Egypt. They were there 430 years. They had to come out of Egypt. Then they wandered around for a long time in the wilderness and 500 years or so. The Palestinian covenant was given unconditionally before it was realized. The Davidic covenant. David would always have one of his sons on the throne. It was given, hasn't been realized yet. Unconditional covenants are not time-dependent. That helps. That helps us with a measure of understanding. Um, Dispensationalist Roger Deffenbaugh, I believe that's how you pronounce uh, his last name, wrote, the new covenant is one that will be fulfilled in the future, Jeremiah assures us, for the days are coming when his covenant will be completed. This covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, that's what he said. We already established that on the last point. But then the very same theologian in my hermeneutical camp, in the same article, went on to say, the work of the Holy Spirit is internal, changing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He creates in us a love for God and a desire to obey his commands. 
The new covenant enables us to begin, become his people, and he be, becomes our God. This kind of intimacy is something that the old covenant can never produce. Well, is it for Israel or is it for the believer? Do you, do you appreciate the discrepancy in this article? He is saying, he said, in the same article, presumably written the same day. And I can't do any better, by the way. It's for Israel in the future. Absolutely, that's true. And the work of Christ created in me a clean heart and a new heart and gives me intimacy with the Lord. And that's the new covenant. Okay. I'm more confused. And then I start, the, the clouds a little bit started to lift. Thank you all for, um, for giving really undivided attention. You seem like you are locked in, and I'm grateful for that because this is a struggle for me. 35 years of preaching ministry, I've not struggled ever like I have this week. Um, you're welcome. Romans 9, I got a little bit of an insight. I think, with this. It ta- uh, the Apostle Paul uh, uh, parenthetically deals with chapters 9, 10, 11, Romans, with uh, uh, Israel and the disposition of Israel and, and what, what's God going to do with the, the Jew and all. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, that is the glory of God in the temple, the tabernacle of the temple, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. Whose are the fathers that thou... That is not God the Father. That is the word for patriarch. So this is talking about, this belonged to Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all the rest. That's what the context is there. These are things that belong to them. Of whom, of these patriarchs, concerning the flesh, Christ came. He came through Israel. God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, all of these things given to Israel splattered onto those of us who are Gentiles. They were not intended for us. The Abrahamic covenant is not intended for me. But Genesis 12, 3, I think, says, But in thee shall who be blessed? All the nations of the world be blessed. And so it is, to use a negative illustration, it is raining cats and dogs. And the street has a pool of water in it everywhere. And, and a big truck comes driving by at 60 miles an hour. And you get splashed and drenched by the overflow of what happened. And so it seems that that is the case with the new covenant for the Gentile. Anybody here a Gentile? Something happened to you relative to the work of Christ. Amen? And it wasn't intended targeting you in the new covenant, at least not in the way Jeremiah 31 is describing it. So most of the folks in my hermeneutical camp believe that Christ being the mediator of the new covenant means that the new covenant began when he finished his work 
and that the benefits of it are for New Testament believers right now. Now, I think I, I, think I would be accurately stating that that was Adam's understanding yesterday in my office. And I said this, give me one verse that says, oh, and parenthetically, the, the new covenant is supposed to splash on the Gentiles also. And there isn't one. Hence, the difficulty of developing that as a point of doctrine. I struggle with it. Um, it's not a battlefield on which I'm willing to die. But I do struggle with it. With any covenant, there are inherent blessings. Now, let me, let me uh, wrap this up by giving you this illustration. I think this will help. It helped me anyway. There are inherent blessings even though you're not a part of the covenant. I told you three weeks ago that I had the great blessing of solemnizing a wedding. Tim and Felicia right here. You're so cute and fresh. And you've been married a month now, roughly? I was right there with them. I, was say, I said, do you, Tim, take this woman? And on and on. Do you, Felicia, Felicia, take this man? They said yes, enthusiastically. And they meant it from the depth of their souls. I was right there. I was a foot away. Many of you were gathered. But the covenant was between who? Those two people. With the Lord. It's a covenant in the name of the Lord between those two parties. I mediated that covenant. I, I brokered that covenant. But I'm not part of their covenant. And yet, I got to go to the reception. And I was so happy to be out on the dance floor with Kathy. I benefited from the covenant. Y'all with me? And many, many others did as well. And in your marriages, people have benefited from that covenant. Benefited through the lives of your children, your grandchildren. The blessing of who you are and your marriage is to others. So, it ought not surprise us that a covenant made between two parties will have lots of spillover onto others. Let me give you an example biblically. The Abrahamic covenant was made between two parties. Who? God and Abraham. And he said, and your children that will follow. And yet, because Abraham, because Abraham is the, if you will, the father of faith, Romans 4, we are children of faith. In, in that sense, not making, saying Israel's not distinct at all. I'm more dispensational than I've ever been. But I also am a follower of the God of Abraham and a child of faith. And so, in a spiritualized way, again, it's killing me to say it this way. <laughs> I have entered into the Abrahamic covenant in a spiritualized way. 
Take the Palestinian covenant. Was the land between Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, between Egypt and Lebanon, was that given to me or to you? No. It was not given to you. It was not given to any Gentile. It was given to a people group, an ethnicity called Israel, known as the Jews. And yet, there's been prepared for me and you a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. Amen. There's been a land. There's a home. There's a homeland for you and for me. And so maybe there is some understanding of the Palestinian covenant that sprayed over onto us. How about the Davidic covenant? That was made between whom? God and David and his sons who would follow. I'm not part of that covenant specifically, directly, but I have a king. (laughs) So, just trying to figure it out, folks, and get it right. Seminary professor David Larson wrote, the great promises of Messiah were given to Israel, Romans 9, 4, and Christ came through Israel. But Gentile believers have become the joyful beneficiaries of these promises without any loss whatever of the ultimate and final fulfillment of the kingdom promises to Israel during a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. I guess that says it as, as best as I know to say it, because I did not want to presume as so many commentators and theologians do. The new covenant's for Israel in the future. And isn't it great that we have it all applied to us? There's no verse that says that. But there's a lot of principles of covenants which lend that to our understanding. Finally, and thirdly, very quickly, we see in verse 13 the extinction of the Old Covenant. Verse 13 of our text, the extinction of the Old Covenant. Did I blow past that? There it is. The extinction of the Old Covenant. Notice it says, a new covenant he hath made, the first old. Now that which decayeth and groweth old is ready to vanish away. Did the Levitical system stop, practically speaking, with the death and resurrection of Christ? No. When did the Levitical system stop for Israel, for the Jew? When did it actually stop? 70 A.D., that's exactly right, A.D. 70. When the Roman general Titus finally got through into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, I mean brought it down, except for, of course, the Wailing Wall, which is still there. Sure, it's been repaired many times. And so that is what seemingly is being referenced here that it is ready to vanish away, and it did vanish away, which tells us a date for the writing of the book of Hebrews, that it was before 7 AD 70, and that's helpful information. Conclusion, what are we to learn from this? What can we know for sure about the superiority of the new covenant? Let me offer 
Four thoughts without comment. One, we can know for sure of the superiority of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But you can give a comment if you'd like on that. Amen. We can know for sure that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can know for sure, apart from the rapture of the church, death awaits all of us. You can say amen to that. Precious in the eyes of the Lord the death of his saints. And we can know for sure that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, no matter your understanding of the new covenant, thank the Lord. I don't have to fully get it on that. But if I'll believe in him, I'll have everlasting life. You know, a few years ago, I told you many times that I would default often during a time of questioning, maybe even despair, to the theology, God knows. And that was not a cop-out, ever. It was a huge source of comfort to my soul. God knows. And relative to the new covenant and the various nuances of interpretation, the Lord is saying, in essence, Vic, I've got this. (laughs) I am so glad that he does. Lord, I'm so glad.